You're listening to TIP. These venues are booking out a year, two years in advance, and that was like insane. So I feel like I've always been a real estate guy at heart. I always thought maybe I'd get into multi single family. You know, I was going down that rabbit hole and studying it all. But I really had that like light bulb moment when we we're kind of looking of like, wow, like this is a big, beautiful property. I felt like it was like the ultimate like real estate play. Hey guys, in this week's episode, I got to sit down with Alex Nelson to talk about how he got started in the wedding venue business. You'll learn about what the process of starting an event space was like, how he selected the site, what the finances of his project look like, how he markets the space, and how Twitter has jump-started his consulting business, plus a whole lot more. Alex goes by the wedding venue guy on Twitter, and he's built a $3 million venue. He also consults with investors looking to enter the space and is in the process of building out a wedding venue holding company. I'm really intrigued with the event space, and Alex gave some great info on how to get started if this is also an asset class that interests you. So let's dive into it and get into this week's episode with the wedding venue guy, Alex Nelson. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard, Patrick Donnelly, and Kyle Grieve, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host today, Patrick Donnelly. And joining me today is the wedding venue guy from Twitter. Alex, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me, Patrick. I'm really excited to talk with you today. I just want to jump right in and get right into the wedding venue niche business that you're in. I just wanted to hear like how you got into it, how you got inspired by it. Just want to hear kind of like the background story of like how you found your way into that niche. Sure. Yeah. Obviously a question we get asked a lot, but short version is my wife and I, we got married four years ago. We live in Iowa. We went and toured all these venues and we're looking at these venues. Even if we back up a little farther, we're actually, we were high school sweethearts. So we've been together for a long time. It was no surprise that we were going to get married. And we actually started looking at venues before we were even engaged. And this was like pre-COVID, pre all the craziness. And my wife was a teacher, so she had to get married during the summer. So she's looking at these dates and it was either like, we decide soon or they're booking out so far that we we're going to have to push it like a whole nother year. And to that, it was like the end of the world. We're going to like push our, put our life on hold for a whole nother year. So we ended up looking at venues and booking a venue before we were even engaged. And we're just in Iowa. And it's like, these venues are booking out a year, two years in advance. And that was like insane. So I feel like I've always been a real estate guy at heart. I always thought maybe I'd get into multi single family, you know, I was going down that route a hole in studying it all. But I really had that like light bulb moment when we we're kind of looking of like, wow, like this is a big, beautiful property. I felt like it was like the ultimate like real estate play kind of thing as a young guy. And yeah, that's when we kind of, we knew we wanted to. My wife liked the wedding. She planned our wedding, planned a bunch of like friends and family's weddings. That was kind of the initial idea. Fast forward a couple years and it was mid COVID. She was teaching teachers, you know, were struggling at that time. The school system was a mess. And not to get like too far into that, but she basically was just like, I don't want to do this for the next 30 years kind of thing. So she started looking at other things to do, you know, and went back to being like a wedding planner. And at that time, you know, we were kind of hustling and saving up and I wanted to make some sort of real estate investment. So I was just like, you know, let's think a little bit bigger here. Maybe let's go back down that venue path and see what we can do. So. You know, we just started reading and, and researching everything we possibly can. And honestly, there's not very much information out there. It's a rather new industry of these like standalone venues where you can get married on site, you know, have the ceremony, have the cocktail hour all in one place. Like it used to always be just like these hotels or these ballroom or event centers, you know, where you get married in a church and then just have the reception there. So things are, you know, still shifting. I mean, have shifted over like the last 10 years, I would say. So again, not a ton of info out there, but we went down that rabbit hole and it was a long journey, but we figured it out and got it built. Awesome. Yeah. So I wanted to backtrack a little bit and I wanted to hear just a little bit about college, what you studied in college. You had mentioned prior to the interview here, just listening to some real estate podcasts. So I just wanted to hear a little bit about your background, whether your family was involved in real estate. Just wanted to hear a little bit about your background story. Sure. No, family was not in real estate or anything. I'd say definitely just like middle of the road, middle class. My dad worked for a convenience store chain for like 30 years. My brother went on to start a couple of tech companies and he dropped out of college. Uh, and we can maybe talk about that later. But for me, I, I finished college. I went to the University of Iowa. I studied business management, which funny enough, I ended up working more in kind of finance world. But 
yeah, in mid college, you know, same kind of thing. I think I had that light bulb moment when I was, we had like five roommates and we're all paying six, 700 bucks a month in rent, adding up the mass and like looking up house prices. I was like, oh, this guy's cash flow is good. So that got me kind of into real estate. And then I realized student rentals were maybe not the right path after we kind of destroyed that place. But that got me into, you know, bigger pockets and all those real estate podcasts and things. So I always felt like I wanted to be in the real estate game. And ultimately, I'm, I'm really glad where we ended up. It's like uh, we had the venue in the real estate, the asset, but it's also a business too, which I feel like I'm even more passionate about. Had you done any kind of real estate projects or deals prior to doing the wedding venue? So we bought our own house in 2018. We pretty much tried to remodel the whole thing. Honestly, like we, we ripped out the doors and trim and slot some new paint on. We refinished cabinets, things like that. We thought we were like doing like a, an easy flip, I guess. So we weren't like necessarily like tearing it out of studs or anything like that. And we made a little bit of money, but not like a ton. So that was like a learning experience. We definitely like loved like the design aspect of it and kind of that. So. We did that. And then two years later, we went to go sell it. And then we started building our own house, actually. So we built our own house. We designed all that kind of from scratch. And we did that. And then like, you know, a year later, we we're looking for a new project. And it was all kind of at the same time. And we're like, let's take it up a notch. Let's let's build a venue, you know, so no like big commercial projects or anything like that. I had worked for like a real estate brokerage. I was doing like online sales or and kind of helping out with their like online leads and kind of on that end of it but no other like real big real estate projects so that second house that you did you bought a lot and then came up with the plans you know functioned as your you know general contractor you handled the entire thing no i didn't gc uh, we hired a builder so they had like some standard plans and stuff that we could pick from kind of and then we tweaked it and customized it from there but we more like designed it ourselves i guess but yeah we didn't gc the venue ourselves either Got it. So did you consider any other real estate asset classes or did you dial in and you know, like right into wedding venues? I definitely did. I was always looking at residential real estate, you know, maybe considering doing a flip. We kind of tried our own like little mini flip, like I said. We also, you know, I was looking at like other multifamily. I wanted to house hack at one point. We didn't find any like real contender duplex wise or triplex wise. So kind of ended up scratching that. But yeah, so I, I was like looking at it all the time. Other than those two, you know, either either like a small multi or residential, not really. I thought that I'd pick one of those and kind of snowball, but then I got hooked on this like venue track and I thought it was like a bigger, better play. What was the light bulb moment? Yeah, it was like going back to like when we were getting married and looking at these venues, there's only a couple like standalone venues. And then like the more we looked into it, it was like, dang, these venues are booking like 50, 60, 80 weddings like during construction before they're even open. And we just like really knew like we got married at a venue in our area. There's like one other newer build that we looked at and then maybe like one or two other like remodeled spaces. But there was like definitely like a need for something different in our market. We're in Iowa, right? So these barn venues are popular. That's a trend across the nation is, you know, people with land and a barn, they remodel these barns and all of a sudden they're charging, you know, five, six, seven, eight, 10K a night. And that's great, but we wanted to bring something different to the market. So we built more of like a modern industrial building, but yeah, we just, we knew there was like a gap in the market that we could fill. And going back to like the light bulb moment of like, it's like a real estate play and they're charging all these money and they're booking out a year or two years in advance. And we just went through the process, right? Like we were like customers. The little info that we did like read and find is like, I think it was like geared towards people that were maybe, you know, 30, 40, 50. Uh, and they're like always saying like, just cause like what you did when you got married, it's different now. Like you're not necessarily like your target customer. And it's like, we were. So like, we felt like we had an edge, like all of our friends are starting to get married or just got married, all of our family and people our age. So I think that was a big factor too. I mentioned that I, I got married last year. Uh, last, It's been almost a year. It'll be uh, in September. But yes, yeah, same thing. My wheels got turning when I started looking at this place that we rented that's booked out. I mean, it's booked out all of next year already. And I was like, holy cow, like that kind of demand, you know, like what are the possibilities? So super intriguing to me. Did you have any kind of, um, I don't know, somebody that you were modeling the place on or anybody that was kind of walking you through this process? Or were you just learning as you were going along, kind of making it up as you went? 
Yeah, honestly, uh, just making it up as we went, you know, we probably tried to look for and found as many venues on Instagram and online as we could across the nation. And like, we just took little things that we liked from this venue or that venue and, you know, thinking through our experiences of like what we liked and what we didn't like. We ultimately didn't hire like a consultant. They were more like focused on like, the build side, like they had built a venue in Texas and they were managing like some, a couple bars for like other venues. And they kind of helped us with like a rough business plan and some rough numbers. And it was all pretty generic, to be honest, but it forced us to spend money early on and really commit ourselves. And then that kind of was the trend. We had to front a lot of money, to be honest, before we even got funding. So yeah, for the most part, we just figured it out as we went. So I wanted to go into that. What were some of those early costs that you had to do to decide whether this was like a no-go situation for you? Right. The consulting was one that was like five grand up front. That was like where we started. And then they could like also have been like our builders. They're saying they could like build nationwide and things like that. But we ultimately decided like we wanted someone more local to help us uh, and kind of be a little more hands on involved um, instead of like meeting via Zoom and stuff like that. So then we found like a local builder and then it was like, you know, a couple of these builders had like we went with a builder at first that had done another venue in our area. So they kind of like a design build package. And I think we spent another like 2,500 bucks and then we got, we made some renderings and I think that was maybe another seven. So there's like nine plus five, 14 grand that we were like in before we even had any idea if this was real. And we definitely not super wealthy by any means, you know, we were still like decently fresh out of college. Like we had decent, good paying job. You know, I was essentially working like two remote jobs online things like that but like definitely didn't just have like hundreds of thousands sitting around or anything like that we knew we had enough saved up to like maybe you know to be dangerous but yeah it was definitely a big risk but if it, it forced us to get really serious about it right and always figuring out the next step and the next step and the next step so i would highly recommend it for like anyone you know thinking about doing anything it's like it's okay to spend some money to learn and figure it out. Don't obviously like bankrupt yourself or spend everything that you have but you know it's a risk you have to take risks yeah, I think that's a really good point. I see a lot of people just kind of get stuck in information acquisition mode, and it's really easy to do. There's so much content out there that it's like, I just need more information, more information. You just jumping right in, like you had to learn on the fly. And like in many ways, that's the best way to do it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I would be lying if our parents and friends and family were like, are you guys sure like you want to do this? It's like mid COVID too. Like it's crazy. Like, are you sure you guys are just cooped up and, uh, you know, kind of getting crazy here? And it was just like, we got to take a chance for serious. We see a need in the market and COVID actually kind of helped it. Uh, we actually launched at a pretty good time. But yeah, you just kind of got to go for it. So I wanted to hear about how you found the land. I wanted to hear about like the importance of location for these kind of projects. Talk to me a little bit about that, like how you guys went about finding the location for the venue. Yeah. So in pretty much like every step, you know, we were looking at like the other venues in our area and like asking ourselves, like, how can we be different? So all these venues, you know, a lot of them are on like big chunks of land, you know, they're big, beautiful, but they're decent way out of town. You know, they're not that close to hotels and they're far away from the airport, you know? So like people are always going to have like guests and, and family traveling in, right? Like, do you want like an hour drive from the airport? Those kind of things. So uh, and we live decently close to the airport, we're like 20 minutes away. So like we wanted to be close to our house. We wanted to be close to the airport. We wanted to be, you know, off like a paved major road. And then we wanted to be near hotels. So honestly, like quite the list and uh, <laughs> trying to like find this perfect location. But, you know, location, just like in real estate in general, it's like usually all location. So we knew that was important from the get go. And we prioritized that. And we were willing to wait a little bit, you know, if we had to. Luckily enough, we found one decently soon. Yeah, that's kind of what we we're looking for. And then we stumbled across this land that was for sale. Uh, essentially, a de developer was taking like a 48 acre parcel that was like farmland. Uh, you know, he was subdividing it up into like two, three, five acre chunks. He did like a 20 acre chunk in the back. So we're actually in like a little mini like development, but it was like all zoned like uh, light industrial from the beginning. And that's a big aspect of these venues is making sure you obviously have the right zoning. You know, if you just buy farmland, you likely can't just turn it into a venue. Uh, you're going to have to like rezone it from ag to the commercial or whatever it is. Every county has like these different codes and zoning rules and venues are kind of in this like weird niche of they can fall under like multiple sometimes or they could be in just like one weird zoning, you know, because the county doesn't really think about that or it's not really top priority. So luckily enough, we found the land and it was like already going to be rezoned to what we needed it to be. So that was part of the the search too, was like, can the land be rezoned to what we need it to be? And, and is it already kind of thing? So 
Did you have the renderings at that point or which came first? Did you get to acquire the land and then you went into the renderings or how did talk to me about that process? I think we had the renderings first, but to be honest, I think they happened pretty close to each other, or at least we like had our eye on this land. I think it's like July of 2020 when we kind of came up with the idea. And by December, we kind of had made an offer and had this land under contract of 2020, you know, and then we didn't end up actually building until April of 2022. So long process. Yeah. So let's get into that. What were some of the hurdles and challenges that happened that kind of delayed it a little? Basically, like I said, so that's developers buying it. He's putting in the roads, the sewers. We got connected to city water and stuff, which is great utilities. But since it was COVID and they had this like water lift station that they were putting in like the back of this development for these, uh, since it was like light industrial, like some industrial big companies could come in. So this this like water lift station, honestly, I don't know the details around what that actually even does, but there was like this one missing part, I guess. So this missing part, because of COVID, they couldn't get it in. So they he had spent a ton of money on all the roads. Everything was all done. We had the land under contract, but like we couldn't close on the land and like get our building permits and start building until like the final plat of this development was approved. Like they do like preliminary plats and like all this three stuff leading up. So like they knew it was going to like the work just all had to be done. And then not to get too much into it, but like it was clear like the county didn't like this one developer. He's kind of known for like pushing approval processes along and kind of using his power and his strength to stronger them a little bit. So it was apparent that they were going to slow him down. And they definitely did, which also slowed us down. So yeah, and it was stressful because we made this mistake of starting to book weddings. And then we gave ourselves a big cushion of our construction timeline and like every month went by like that cushion was getting depleted every single month and we were sitting there sweating bullets and basically just had our hands tied so a lot of ups and downs and stressful to say the least but like i said we got under contract in december of 2020 we thought we were going to start building in july of 2021 i didn't actually start building until like march or april of 2022 and then we turned like a nine month build into like a five month build so we finished in october of 2022 so you had taken a bunch of what you took, what, 50% deposits for people that wanted to schedule for a wedding? Yeah, we did. Yep. 50% down. Is that kind of a common practice? Like before a project is finished, I just wanted to hear about that. Like how you went about, you know, getting people to deposit 50% of a, of a wedding expense on a building that wasn't there. Like that's a kind of a big ask. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. And obviously, uh, it takes a lot of trust and you got to build rapport with these couples. But we had seen other venues like start to do it. Like I said, like the whole industry is kind of newer of these new like standalone venues. So, you know, as they're getting built and just looking at it from like a cost perspective, right? Like it's hard to build this $3 million building and then you book weddings, book out a year or two years in advance. And like if you wait until you're completely done with construction to even start taking deposits or, or start touring people, like they're not going to book until like the next year or the year after even. So like you're going to sit empty for a full year uh, and you not have all those carrying costs. So we knew we needed to get people in there like right away. And we were maybe young and too gung-ho a little bit there and, and made some mistakes along the way. But yeah, we were taking 50% of deposits there. We would meet with couples on Zoom instead of like giving them a tour. Like we had our renderings, we had like a rendering walkthrough. You know, we'd have like floor plans we'd show them. And we really tried to think through like every aspect to show that we were like prepared and like we were serious and we were like thinking through all these things about their day, you know, because it is to them, it's, you know, the biggest day of their lives up until that point. So it, it was important to us. And we had just went through the experience too, right? So I feel like we could connect with them. We made a lot of good friends, honestly, with these early couples. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? 
Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right. Back to the show. So how did you go about actually marketing it? How did people find out about it? Did you guys throw up a website? How did you go about just spreading the word for the venue? Yeah. And that's something that's kind of crazy too, is like, you don't need a ton of marketing, right? Like a word of mouth travels pretty fast. Like, you know, Instagram, Facebook, we threw up a website, uh, you know, we blasted these renderings online and we ran a couple of Facebook ads, Instagram ads, and people kind of started to catch on and tagging other people that are getting engaged or married and things like that. And then the big like company is like the knot in the wedding wire where a lot of the vendors are and a lot of the venues and things like that. So we were on there from early on and that kind of leads them either to our page on there or to our website. So yeah, not a ton of marketing spend. Didn't do any like huge marketing events or anything either, really. Honestly, mostly just word of mouth and then those a few channels. So you had mentioned, I think I heard a $3 million cost for the project. I wanted to get into the financing of it. Talk to me about how you guys acquired the funding. Just wanted to hear a bit about that. Was it your own funds, family, you know, loans? I just wanted to go into how you actually paid for the project. Yeah, definitely. And I kind of hit on it a little bit earlier. Like we didn't have a ton of like money or hundreds of thousands. You know, I think I was projecting that we would have like 100K at the end of the year. And I knew that would kind of make us dangerous because I I found, you know, you could do an SBA loan. uh, You could do this for like 10% down. They would fund like the real estate and the business aspect of it. And very early on, I thought we could do it for like 1.5. I was like, oh, that that should be good, right? (laughs) And then once we got serious about it and kind of got real plans going and then we got real bids, I think the first one came back at like 2.1, which was like, okay, like we could do this. And we had saved up maybe a little bit more along that time frame. And then we ended up, we raised 80K from a family. But you know, that only happened because like we had already put the work in. We already spent a ton of money. Like we already had this and we like felt like it was like a slam dunk at this point. You know, I don't want like people like listening be like, oh, of course, like family pitched in, but like not like wealthy at all. Like my in-laws gave pretty much everything they had, honestly, like in savings to go towards this because they believed in us and we'd already done the work up front. So yeah, th- that was by like 2.1 we were at, but due to those delays and since it was COVID, you know, lumber prices are going crazy. All these subs are like bidding like crazy. So like every time we went to go get like new bids like three months later, because we, we can lock it in before we could lock the land in and start building, everything would go up like hundreds of thousands. Like each sub went up, you know, 20, 30, 40K. So it, it was crazy. So when by the time it was all said and done, I think we landed at like two seven for the building. And then by the time you throw in furniture and fixtures and equipment, you know, another 180. And then during the build, we kept adding stuff. And, you know, we added like a waterfall and like all these things like make it better. And at that time, you know, we had money coming in. So it was nice. But yeah, we just kind of kept adding. So pretty close to three mil all in uh, is where we ended up. And then did you do the SBA loan for the remainder of it? Is that how it worked out? No, actually, crazy enough, like we went down that road, we got approved, we had to keep going back to them like three times for like increases on the loan and we got approved, approved, and then we got declined. And then we're like, you know, we're not like wealthy, like we don't have a big balance sheet, like personal balance sheet, like they're going to pull this right from under us pretty much. So we got nervous, you know, we scaled it back a little bit as much as we could without like taking away what we want to. And then we got approved on that. But like we knew we were, it was going to be like super tight. And then like with the SBA, you know, you have... They'll take like your building costs and everything. And then they're adding like a 10% contingency. So we had like 
almost 300k and the contingency that they were like adding on top of this but like we were like hoping in the back of our minds like we hope we can like spend this money because we're going to need it probably but like they didn't want to know that so it was messy for sure it was definitely super stressful we had went from one builder and then they their like main guy had like left and they were like trying to farm it out to a different gc so they are like bringing in a gc to manage so they're both taking like gc cuts like two of them so then we're like we left them we went to another builder and then the main guy we were working with there he left and started his own company right and then we became good friends with him he partnered with a, a local guy that had a big insurance company and he ultimately ended up helping us fund it through construction and then we kind of like bought it back from them after so we locked in like a conventional loan that way but so insane. We always only plan on doing the SBA route and like none of this would have happened if we didn't like spend the money, do everything and, and kind of go down this like crazy pass. But we ended up like looking out and we locked it in at like 3.25, I think, versus like the SBA was going to be like five and a half at that point. But if that that's like a floating rate, right? So that would be like 10, 11% now, which is insane. So yeah. So I want to make sure I understand you. It was like the construction guy teamed up with this insurance character in town who had the money to fund you almost like a bridge loan. The construction took place. And then then you like found a bank and got a conventional loan. Yeah, he essentially went and got a loan. Just yeah, he just got a conventional loan basically based off his like personal financial statement. Like they didn't even care like what was going in this building because he's a well-known uh, name around here and a big insurance company. And then he's known to like invest in like young entrepreneurs and like all this stuff. So he basically just wanted to help us out. And then we set up like a lease to like purchase kind of agreement there after the fact to kind of like, get us through like the construction in like the early year. Got it. So a lot going on. I mean, you've got married. I think you had a kid. You've got two remote jobs that you're doing. Your wife is a teacher. You're managing this project. Talk to me about that. Just like how you like and look at in retrospect, how did you manage all that? Yeah, insane, stressful. Yeah, a lot of sleepless nights, to be honest. But yeah, I think COVID hit. My wife was teaching. Uh, we started this process. Once we kind of knew it was locked in and, and it was going decently well, we're taking deposits in. She ended up leaving teaching and then everything got delayed and then she got pregnant. So we had our first kid in the meantime of like all this going on and that. And then we finally got it built. And then now we just had our second kid. <laughs> so yeah, I was doing two remote jobs at the time and managing this. And then I dropped one of them. Uh, and kept the other one for a while. And the goal was like always to like not have to take a ton of money out of the business, uh, you know, and like have to live off that. Like we wanted to build up a nice cash cushion and not really touch these deposits until later. So honestly, I, I just left my other W-2 and now focusing on going down like the consulting route and partnering with other venues and, and trying to create this like hold code eventually of venues underneath us and creating a, a model there. So I've always seemed to have like multiple things going on and I don't really see it changing anytime soon. You know, I kind of want to go down this route of having multiple businesses and partnering with operators and doing all that. We'll definitely get into the holding company. I, I want to dive further into that later on here, but I, I just wanted to kind of just stick with when you guys, were you really hands-on with the design and day-to-day? -day, like, were you there checking things out as the construction was going on? Like, How hands-on were you during the process? Or did you just leave it up to the GC to say like, I trust you, good luck? Yeah, no, <laughs> definitely super hands on. We had like a good idea and path of like what we wanted to do design wise. And like we had some time since things kept getting delayed. But ultimately, like things did end up changing like during the build. But yeah, we live probably 15 minutes from the venue. So we were there daily looking at things, changing things and so many changes and change orders and an unbelievable amount of stuff I learned during construction in that in that development process. Our GC was great. He definitely had an eye for design as well, which was super helpful. And then he could kind of help us with that. And then we focused on like the wedding end of it and like the flow and how things were going to work and all of this. And I would say during the time we thought we built this like perfect venue, like we thought through like every single aspect and every little thing we thought we'd give ourselves probably like an A plus on the build. Now that we've been open for a year, I'd say maybe more like a B plus. There's things just like after the wedding, like after you like see weddings happening and like things going on, it's like, oh man, like it seems so obvious now, right? But like, and you just don't know until like actual events and people, you're getting 300 people in there on a Friday and then getting them out and getting another 300 people in there for the Saturday and maybe another 300 for the Sunday. So a um, lot of slips and processes and systems in place now. But yeah, we were very hands-on and, and try to think through everything. And now it's kind of hitting on, like we're focused on like helping others do the same thing and kind of realizing those things that we didn't realize early on. 
So when you did the design, I wanted to hear about some of the things that you, you've got some cool aspects to it. I, I looked at the photos that you've got on Twitter. It's really cool. Can you talk to us about just some of the features of it you think make it stand out? Yeah, definitely. So if you're looking at our building from the road, you know, it's we have like the main structure in the middle, which is like the grand hall. And then we have like two big wings and those wings house like the getting ready suites, right? So like one side is geared towards the guys. It's like the groom suite. The other side is the girls. So we knew we wanted like the suites on opposite ends of the building. When we got married, the place didn't even have like a groom suite. I got ready at a buddy's house that lived close by. And then we showed up to the venue. And of course, the girls are late getting ready. So like we had to sit in the parking line, wait for the girls because my wife and I were doing like a first look. So it's like we knew we wanted a groom suite and then we knew we didn't want them like anywhere near each other. Like we've been to other venues where like the suites are like back to back and like that makes no sense because you're like trying not to see each other kind of thing. So they're like opposite ends of the building, which made like the building have like this cool winged look from the street. So we felt like that was like something that we had never seen before and no other venue had done that. Most of them are just like big rectangle boxes basically. So that was cool. And then off the back end of the building and off the back of the grand hall we have like big sliders they're like bifold doors that open all the way up so the whole back half of the building opens way up and then that goes like straight to the covered patio area another thing was when we got married it was midsummer it was july and everyone was sweating bullets right so we knew we wanted the ceremony spot to be covered so we have like a big like almost three thousand square foot covered patio off the back and then off to like the side of the building we have like a cool like courtyard area where you can have like a cocktail hour spot where we have fire pits and we put like bags and like a big connect four and then we have like a putting green and like a waterfall feature and then the guys the groom suite is like right off this like area as well so like the guys can get ready in the morning they'll hang out in the groom suite and then they go out hang out by the fire pits you know you use the putting green and all that while the girls are still on the opposite side of the building can't see them or anything and then we made a cool like outdoor area for the the bridal suite side too yeah, I think I saw a poker table too in the the uh, groom's room. Yeah, yeah, that's always a big hit. I think we got the poker table, we got like a shuffleboard in there now, a TV, you know, a bar cart with like whiskey decanter and, and fridge and everything. So yeah, we really tried to focus in on the suites and, and appeal to the couple, right? That's like who's booking it. The parents might be paying for it, but it's ultimately the couple. So yeah, we tried to add some cool elements. So when a couple comes to you, they're doing the ceremony, the dinner, like a dance afterwards, all right there, correct? Right. Yeah, I would say like 95% of our couples are doing everything on site or on location. So ceremony usually into some sort of like cocktail hour. Maybe they live in a party bus, maybe they don't. And then into like the actual reception, dinner, all that. You know, it used to be everyone would get married at church and then you just need like a space for a reception. But I think that's why like the why the industry is like changing is like everyone wants these in all in one place, right? Like you don't want your guests having to travel like 15, 20 minutes from the hotel to the church and then back in between. It's just like wasting a lot of time and the day already goes fast enough that like everything being in one place is just better and more efficient. Let's get into like the food and alcohol part of it. Food and beverage. Are you guys handling that too? Or do you guys farm that out? Talk to me about how you handle that process. Yeah, so we don't do the food. We never wanted to do the food. We had no experience there. So we have like what you call like a prep kitchen. So no ovens, no microwaves. So the the caterers will cook the food like offsite, bring it to our place, like prep and serve kind of thing. Couples are free to bring in whatever caterer they want. And then we do all the alcohol. So alcohol has to be bought through us. Like we have a liquor license and all the insurance behind that. So we allow them to buy it through us and we have like different packages and they can customize it from there. But I would say for anyone that's thinking about building a venue and I kind of have talked about like the industry as a whole, I'd say when the, these standalone venues first started popping up, they were mostly just doing like the rental like maybe like BYOB, bringing your own alcohol. And as things have changed and construction prices have gone up, interest rates are high. I would highly, highly recommend like at least bringing the alcohol in-house just because like that's another like 40, potentially 50% of your revenue. Like go on my Twitter, look at my share all of our numbers and all of our revenue numbers. Like you can see the big impact alcohol has. And I think that's the way things are going to trend. Like, yes, people like bringing in their own alcohol and that BYOB option, but I think they're going to get phased out just just from a cost perspective. It's a big building. They're expensive. A lot of expenses, more than people think. So yeah, would highly recommend. So what does a liquor license cost in Iowa? Not bad. I think ours is like 900 bucks for the year. So we get asked that question a lot. Like, was it hard to get? Is it like expensive? You know, and it's like the answer is like, no, it was pretty easy. Like since we're like in the right zoning, we obviously built new. So we followed all the codes and everything as far as that, you know, and 
you have to have like the right sinks and follow like the health code structure and stuff, but they help guide you through that process. So it was pretty straightforward applying for that and getting approved. Uh, and that's definitely something you can scope out ahead of time, like and go to the county who's going to approve you. You're like, hey, like we want to do this. Like, can we get a liquor license? Like they should tell you like you have to do X, Y and Z. So, yeah, definitely something people are like scared of and nervous of, but it's really not that big of a deal. A lot of times I know different states like California and stuff, they only have like certain number of liquor license and you have to like buy the existing liquor license from someone and then they like getting a bidding wars and they're like 250k or something crazy like that so yeah that's a different ball game i would say but i would assume there there's some way to navigate it hopefully yeah 900 bucks sounds pretty reasonable and i mean honestly like alcohol sales it seems like a no-brainer to do to make it be part of it i mean i know there's probably management stuff and you know there's headaches from it yeah, there's work behind it and whatnot, but and, and ultimately, I think the couple likes, you know, maybe it costs them a little bit more, but like there is a service behind it, right? Like they don't have to bring in these tons and tons of cases of beer, wine and stuff like that. They just get to show up and it's there and, you know, we serve it for them and they can buy whatever they want or d- different kinds of things. So. so it's you said it's what, 40 or 50 percent of uh, revenue in a night, the alcohol sales? Yeah, our rental prices right now for like 2023, like a Saturday is like 6,500 bucks, a Friday is like 5,500. And then we'll see the bar do anywhere from three to, I think we did one that was like eight grand last week. So yeah, they can definitely surpass like the rental fee. And obviously we have to buy the alcohol and there, there's a cost there and associated with that. But you know, you're looking at 65 to 70% margin on those. So it's crazy. Yeah, that's huge margins. So talk to me about the bar. I thought the bar was pretty cool layout. Was that part of your design or who came up with that? Yeah, it was. The grand hall is obviously for sitting people and everything. And you kind of have to keep it pretty neutral so it can fit anyone's colors and stuff. But the only like real things that like stick out are like the chandeliers. Uh, So we kind of went all out on those. We have like eight huge six foot diameter chandeliers. And then the bar was like the staple or like the focal point kind of thing. So yeah, we designed that honestly on the fly that got pushed off until pretty much last, you know, it was like something uh, you could frame out and build at a later time. And like I said, our construction timeline got squeezed down. So it got pushed like it was always there in the plans, you know, at the plumbing stubbed out and stuff, but it probably didn't get built out until like the last three weeks, four weeks kind of thing. Like I kind of pops are showing up soon. So you better uh, frame this out and get it built and then yeah, figure out how to design it well. And we did like a pretty cool, like arched mirror kind of thing. But yeah, that was a last minute find too and got it custom made. So it turned out great. It's cool. I want to say it's 18 foot long, you know, waterfall edge kind of thing. So you're running it Friday, Saturday. Are you doing Sunday events too? We do. They're not like super duper popular. This weekend's like a holiday weekend. So Sunday is booked out, you know, Labor Day, Memorial Day. Those those Sundays usually go. And then like popular months for us, like June and September. So we'll see some more Sundays then. Usually a bit more like chill crowd and maybe smaller wedding kind of thing. So I want to say we have like seven or eight this year. Hopefully maybe we'll get some more next year. We also have like a church that rents out our space on Sundays. They came and approached us and asked and they're willing to like work around like our our weddings, you know, they were running out a different space. They've never really had like a home base. So now they kind of feel like this is kind of their home and we don't have anyone work those events. So we have good relationship with them now. So like they just have key, they come in, set up, tear down, do everything themselves. So they're not paying like a huge rental fee every week, but it adds up to like 20 grand over the year, I think. So definitely nice uh, to kind of fill in the gaps there just because obviously like otherwise Sundays would be sitting empty. So let's, I wanted to get into the management of it. How are you and your wife handling that? How hands-on are you guys? Are you behind the bar? You know, are you, talk to me about just how you guys are managing the, the project. Yeah, we were super hands-on at the beginning. It's like we always figured like, how can we hire and train people like when we haven't even done it ourselves? So we opened in October. So it's kind of nice that we opened in October. We had like every Friday, Saturday booked in October and every Friday, Saturday booked in November up until like Thanksgiving. And then we had like a New Year's Eve wedding. So we had like 15 weddings or so. And we're like, all right, like we're going to be super hands-on. We'll figure out everything during this time frame. And then like come next year, we can kind of start outsourcing and hiring out things. And I think we had, we had two other employees. Otherwise, my wife and I pretty much worked every wedding. We'd work Friday, Saturday, back to back days, like 16, 17 hour days, that first stretch. And it was a lot. It was tiring, but we learned a lot. And that allowed us to kind of build out some systems and hire and knew what we want to hire for and who we want to hire and 
one of our first employees that we hired and she ended up, she actually just reached out to us. She ended up being turning into like our venue manager now. And now we have like 10 part-time girls on rotation that work weddings. And then we actually outsource our bartenders to another company that does all the bartending for us. Uh, like we do all the alcohol ordering and kind of like tee it up for them and they just show up on the day of and do bartending. But yeah, uh, pretty hands off now. So that's kind of allowed me some time to, you know, kind of focus on the bigger picture and kind of see what's next and start getting into that. So let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. Well, let's get into that. I want to get into what's next. I know you're doing some advising of other you know, people that are interested in wedding venues. We'll get into Twitter and the outreach that or people that are reaching out to you. Talk to me a little bit about like the advising aspect of what you're doing and maybe some projects that you're involved in right now. Right. You know, I thought long and hard about this and what I wanted like our next steps to be. And, you know, we get asked all the time, like, are you going to build another one? Are you going to do this or that? And for a short while, we wanted to build like a hotel next door to our venue and maybe put it like a second event space in there and like have like a restaurant run out space from us. And we kind of went down that path, but then like interest rates skyrocketed. Right. And we're like, do we really want to go take on, you know, five, seven million dollars worth of debt there too? So we kind of got spooked and kind of put it on hold and, and really we're trying to focus on getting the venue operating efficiently and what we want to do next. And we learned it's a lot to manage these venues. It is a real business. A lot of people think like, oh, you're so lucky you throw up this building and get a you know, charge six, seven grand for it and make all this alcohol sales. But like, you know, we have a lot of people working for us now, a lot of processes, things going on. So our plan was never really to go build like 10 of these and manage it ourselves. We always wanted to find like operators to partner with. We feel like we are obviously pretty hands-on. We live nearby, like finding someone like us that wants to be hands-on at first. And, you know, you can build out a team, build out 
a manager and stuff, but like you live near the area, you're going to like know your market and area better than like we probably ever could figure out or learn or, or do. So it's kind of been like our strategy. And, and the way we're doing that is like I got on Twitter and within like five months I blew up. I've probably had I'd have to go back and look, but I'm talking like 150, 200 people reach out to me saying, you know, hey, I've thought about building a venue and not everyone's serious, of course, but I've had uh, tons of serious people, you know, so I've kind of created this model of like, hey, we'll charge you like an upfront fee, like consulting wise, we'll we'll talk through like everything from A to Z. We'll talk about your business plan, you know, we'll work on projections, look at your location, look at your building plans, think through like the flow of the building, all this stuff to like get, get you up until construction or like through construction is kind of what that fee will get you. And then if you want like more help on the back end. We'll partner with you and maybe come up with like an equity split or a rev share agreement and we'll continue to help you like on the operations. We'll like put systems and processes in place for you and then, you know, teach you what we learned about and maybe take on some like back office tasks for you as far as like lead generation and things like that. And we're slowly building out a team that can support that on that end. We have probably close to 10 projects going right now. They're all pre-development for the most part. One, we're trying to help someone like acquire a venue. Most of them are going to be new builds. So a, a lot of moving pieces already. So try to build out the team and, and help. And we probably have uh, proposals out to another 15, 20 people that I hope another half those sign on. It's a big commitment and a big thing, but lots of things going. So when you say build out the team for that part of it, what do you mean by that? What kind of people are you hiring? What do you need like help with? Yeah, definitely. I just can't do it all myself now anymore already, which is crazy. So building out, you know, ideally we'll have someone, you know, helping jump on these like sales calls with me essentially and locking these venues down and getting the to book with us on like the consulting side. And then we need someone more like on the back end, on the ops side that's going to help them with like lead flow, help them with like marketing, help them with all this and like their processes and systems. And so honestly, like a small, a small team at the top of hopefully like this hold co that has like equity into some of these, you know, and we're also looking at adding an additional partner that'll bring some capital. So like we, we're potentially going to like co-invest with some of these venues. So if we co-invest, have equity, and then we're also going to be partnered with them to help them on the back end and get this like revenue share agreement going. So then we'll have like reoccurring revenue from these venues, also hold equity. And then we'll have like more like the active income of just like the consulting and the fees on that front end of it. So kind of like a three added monster kind of there of income coming in. And then we also, we're, we're looking to act acquire other venues or unique properties. It's just tough right now. It's hard to get anything to pencil. And honestly, a lot of these venue owners are just pretty unrealistic, right? They're usually mom and pop kind of people like they built it from scratch. You know, they're very connected to these properties and it's hard because they're valuing it. Like, you know, they're thinking like the real estate's worth X and then they're thinking like the business is worth X. But it's like the whole thing's only really worth like what it makes. Like you can't value both of them, you know? So they're, they're putting like three, five million bucks on these things and they don't even have like an NOI of like three, 400K, you know? So it's like, how are you going to go take a $4 million loan and pay two, 300K a year right now for it? So you've got a ton going on. What's your average day look like? You don't have a full-time gig anymore, I take it. Right, no, don't have that anymore. So drop the kiddo off at daycare, come home. The wife has a, a newborn she's home with. So work from home, ideally, you know, but sometimes running back and forth to the venue, doing small things, uh, dropping things off, hopping on a lot of calls, and then trying to do market research and, and help people with their business plans and, and numbers right now on the consulting side. So yeah, crazy. Uh, I'd be lying to say if I wasn't running around with my head cut off, but it's kind of what we've proven to be good at is just figuring it out as we go kind of thing. And I'd imagine like this model that we have in our head might end up changing a little bit, but it's a general traction that we're trying to do. And uh, luckily, there is not a ton of people in the space. It's, it's pretty niche. And I, I think we can kind of get ahead of the curve. And there's not like a ton of these like big PE firms buying up a ton of venues and, and doing all this, right? It's, it's mostly like people starting them themselves. So I think I just listened to the the podcast uh, where Nick uh, Huber came on and, you know, he said for his advice for like someone starting out early, like focus on businesses that are even more niche and they're, they're like real estate, but like heavy on the operations. And I feel like this is exactly that. So, yeah. Yeah, that was a good point he made. And uh, yeah, it seems like you guys have found a great niche and running with it. I wanted to hear a little bit. You, I saw you tweet a little bit about the this golf course that you're looking to maybe acquire as a project. Talk to me about that, how it's going, what intrigued you about looking into it further and just any other investments that you're trying to make. 
Sure. Yeah. And kind of just like zooming out, you know, we built ours. It's just the venue. But I would say a lot of the projects that we're working on now, you know, they want to add like short term rentals. They want to add, you know, glamping. They want to add other things that are going to drive in more income, too. And, and I think that's great. You're almost building like these like mini resort type properties. Right. I mean, they're super cool and unique. And I think that'll continue to drive people in. So then you kind of look back. It's like, all right, what else can kind of be in that like niche? And then it's like, Golf courses, you know, they have like their own revenue, but like they also have event spaces. They could make like super pretty backdrops. So like they should and could be doing a ton of weddings, you know, wineries. They could be, I think they're more pivoting to doing most of their income is coming from like weddings and events because it's just hard to make money on the wine. So looking at those kind of things and I had always kind of want to, I've been fascinated with these like unique properties. So yeah, we came across a golf course in our area that's for sale. So we could kind of have some of our existing team manage it, bring on some buddies in the area that love golf. And of course they want to own the golf course. So we're kind of going down that rabbit hole. It's a long process, right? So we're going back and forth a lot and, and the numbers don't entirely pencil out. So like we're doing a seller financing deal. So they just kind of countered back to us uh, recently and I've been sharing all the numbers and we'll continue to on Twitter. But so we need to get back to them and we'll see how it works. But the idea is that COVID hit and they basically stopped doing events. Uh, like they were doing like a little bit and like they just like stop. So we're hoping to like come in, you know, revamp the event space a little bit and, and kind of think through the, the wedding packages that they have and hopefully bring some like additional income. But, you know, maybe it's smaller weddings, maybe it's just like other events, but like, you know, it, it's in our area of expertise. And then hopefully, you know, the, the golf's hot right now. And that's maybe like biggest like hesitancy is, is it going to stay hot kind of thing? So yeah, but we're going to keep like a, all the staff and the maintenance guys and those guys on board if we do acquire it on the golf side and then really just focus on like, even if we can add just like 100, 200K of, of revenue on the event side, like it's going to make a huge difference. Yeah, the place where my wife and I got married, it's a golf club and like an event, you know, wedding event space. And I think it's the wedding event space that like really kills it. Like I said, they're booked out for the, you know, the next year at least, more so if not. And then the golf club, you know, I think does well, but it's uh, you know, I don't know if it's as good as the the wedding venue, but I think two of them together do pretty well. Yeah, I think traditionally golf courses didn't do very well until like maybe COVID hit in the last few years. And you can really see on this golf course too, like the number is really ramped up. So that that's maybe like the scary thing is, is it going to dip again? But yeah, I think there's a big, a big need, a big hole. A lot of these golf courses are doing events and, you know, they have the land, they have the property. They're beautiful, spending tons of money on landscaping and things like that. So I think it's a no brainer there and there's a big need there. Right. And is that in Iowa, the golf course? Yeah, that is 20, 25 minutes away from us. So it wouldn't be far. So that's kind of what's appealing. You know, if it was super far away, I don't know if I, I'd swing for the fences on a golf course quite yet. I would say like, I, I like these unique properties and these like mini resort type properties almost, but it's close to home. So it, it makes it a little easier. I just did an uh, episode with a guy named Ben Wolf and he, I think his Twitter handle is unique stays or unique stays guy or something, you know? but I've got to be careful about, it. I kind of fall prey to shiny object syndrome, like talking to him. I was like, He's got these super high-end tree houses and, you know, really awesome, unique stays that he's got. And I talked to you, I've got, you know, I'm like, oh, wedding events. <laughs> do you ever like being on Twitter? Do you ever fall prey to any of that? Like just looking at other asset classes or anything? Oh yeah, hundred percent. You know, Twitter's amazing and, and I love it, but it's, yeah, definitely shiny object syndrome. And you know, and it's like, maybe you should be in something more considerate self-storage guys or like the industrial guys or, you know, these contractor garages, you know, there's all these different classes. I think you just got to pick one and go for it and really learn as much as you can about it. I think they all have positives and negatives and ups and downs. And, you know, some are more just straight real estate plays and some are more like actual operation heavy businesses. So I think we're operating under the, this is like mostly a business with the real estate on the back end. Uh, and then eventually, you know, if we make a ton of money, and make a ton of cash, like we'll go put it in some safer like assets and asset classes and, you know, not take out a ton of debt on that side or something, but yeah, kind of risk it early on and, and kind of go for it. That's great. That's great. You're up to some good stuff. I wanted to hear about any, maybe uh, like nightmare stories, anything that has happened at any of the weddings that you've come into that was just like, oh my God, I can't believe that happened. Anything that you can talk about? I'm trying to think. I mean, yeah, you get, you know, you get a lot of people in there, they're drinking, they're getting drunk, you know, people passing out in the yard and you got people throwing up in the toilets and clogging them and uh, yeah, it, it can get pretty grody and pretty nasty. You know, uh, we created this like beautiful space that we felt like was like our home or like our second home. And then like just watching like the first few weddings just kind of beat it up. Honestly, it's like the walls are getting beat up drywall. It's like all brick or steel or something on the walls probably. But 
I don't know, no like super duper crazy stories. Yeah, but obviously you're, you're getting in there and that most of them are there to party. So it's tough sometimes. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to hear a little more about Twitter and go into that. You've only been on there five, six months. Talk to me about just your Twitter strategy, how you think about it. It sounds like it's been a huge boon for you, like just in terms of people reaching out, leading to new clients. Talk to me a little bit about your experience on Twitter. Yeah, definitely. So I was kind of going down this path of like, you know, how can I help others? There's got to be other people just like my wife and I that are like thinking the same thing. Like they just got married. They want to build a venue, that kind of thing. You know, so I was like, I made a website and I was going to try to start and run some like Google ads and things like that. And then I started getting into Twitter and I had been on there forever, but it was mostly just like sports and news and things like that. And I hadn't been using it that much. And for whatever reason, I got more back on it again. And I just kept getting sucked into like the real estate Twitter and small business Twitter. And, you know, I came across a Nick, sweaty startups and really like that, like a uh, model and what these guys were saying and getting into and like real deals were being done and people were like actually connecting. You know, then I saw like strip mall guy and then I saw car wash guy and a couple of these guy accounts. And I was like, I bet there's not a wedding venue guy. So I kind of looked that up and I was like, I kind of like that. It's like anonymous and like, I don't have to like show my face. I can, I love like the people sharing like real numbers, like Nick, I feel like is is leading that charge. And it's like something different and growing up and looking at all these businesses and like you walk into a space and I'm just like, I wonder what this place does like revenue wise and what do they make? You know, it's like everyone holds it so close to their chest and it's just not like something they share. And I rightfully so I feel like, but like when you're trying to learn and, and figure out what you want to do and where you want to go, it's like, how are you ever supposed to know? You know, I've always been curious, like how much cash do these businesses actually have? Like, how do they operate? Those kind of things. So I like that I could get on there, I could share it and maybe be anonymous for a while. And to be fair, I didn't know there was so many guy accounts. I definitely caught some flack from being another guy account. Maybe it was a little late on the train, but people know exactly what I'm on there for and what I'm doing by my name. So it's worked out well. And I instantly got people reaching out and like, even just after like 100, 200 followers, it, it was crazy. And I was like, tell my wife, like, hey, I got like 240 followers now. Like, I thought it was so cool. And that was like two weeks in. And now I think I have almost 6,000. And it's like, you don't have to have like 20, 50, 100,000 followers to like, for to like really make an impact. Like I said, I'm getting like probably two to five to 10 people sometimes, depending on how big a tweet goes, like reaching out, talking about like wanting to, to build on their property or build this thing and need help with it. So yeah, Twitter has been wild and I didn't really have a strategy. I'm trying to create more of a strategy now, but before it was just like, hey, I'm going to hop on, I'm going to share our numbers. I'm going to, you know, talk about the good, the bad, the ugly kind of thing. So yeah, that's kind of it. And, you know, with Algo, maybe slowing down a little bit or changing a little bit, I, may, I had to pivot a little bit. And, you know, I think the newsletters are great. I don't have one. Maybe I'll create one just to kind of keep that, that funnel going now that we are like actively looking for people to work with. Yeah. Yeah. It seems like there's a lot of newsletters out there. I know like Nick views his newsletter as a way to really find like the handful of people, whether he's, you know, who are going to do business with him. You know, that's really what the newsletter is all about. He's got an interesting philosophy about how he uses Twitter that's really worth studying. He's obviously figured it out. Yeah, definitely uh, has a down pat. I think he uh, kind of starts at the top, kind of baits people, which I find hilarious. And, you know, and then he kind of works down to like, you know, use clickbaity stuff to like actual real stuff. And then even farther down to like targeting specific people that are actually going to do business with them. So I think that's a great model. I almost maybe went the other way. I started like super niche and I got like real people like reaching out. And now I'm just kind of going backwards and like, how can I kind of do a couple of clickbaity ones to get some more followers? And it's not about, I don't care about the followers, but like, unfortunately, it's just the more followers you have, the bigger reach you have, the more people that are going to find me. So you got to play the game. So I don't really care. You know, if you're trying to build on there, you're definitely looking for followers. It's just part of it. Yeah. Although not to push back, but um, one of Nick's partner, uh, Mitchell Baldridge, he does the RE Costig company with him. He mentioned, and this is actually a great article. I'll put links in it. It's called A Thousand True Fans, and it's written by Kevin Kelly, a guy named Kevin Kelly, who wrote, you know, you really just need a thousand fans who just love what you're up to in today's age, like to really make a nice living, like with a thousand people following you that are into what you're up to, like you can do really, really well. So, but obviously 300,000 is better than, you know, I think Nick's got like, 300 or something, but yeah, exactly. But no, I, I do agree with that statement. I, and it's proven to be true. You know, like I can charge like five to 15 K for these consulting because they're like serious and they're zoned in on this like actual niche that I'm talking about. And, uh, you know, they get to see kind of into my headspace a little bit and that's all you really need. So uh, yeah, it's insane and it's, it's great. And I don't really want to be on any other platforms. I, maybe at some point I'm going to be pushed to, but I, I really don't. So I really hope the Twitter trend is uh, here to stay. 
Yeah, no, it's an incredible platform. It, it adds tremendous value. I mean, guys like Nick just sharing their playbook and you, you know, sharing your playbook. Was that a hard decision to make? Just, I mean, you are very open about your numbers every week, basically, like what you're doing. Yeah, it made it easier since I did go like anonymous at first because that's what like all the guy accounts were going to do. But a couple, probably a month or so ago, I, I switched it to just my normal stuff and having my picture and stuff on there and my location and whatnot. So that kind of like got me in and, and got me out of like the bubble. I got, I built that confidence at least. It's like, hey, people actually really like this. So like, I don't think I need to be nervous about it. And, you know, I think that was like one of the reasons I got on, right? It was like actually just like show like real numbers and and hopefully like teach someone something or they can learn from my mistakes or, or along that line. So. Yeah. Well, Alex, this has been a lot of fun. Is there anything else you wanted to touch on today that we didn't cover? I don't think so. I, I think we went down our crazy story of getting started and, you know, and a little bit where we're going. But yeah, I'll keep sharing on Twitter for the good or the for the bad, maybe. I don't know, but we'll see where it goes. Yeah, no, I've definitely enjoyed reading your stuff and learning about it. So just, you know, to, for people that do want to learn more about you, tell us again where to find you on Twitter or any other places that you want them to know about. Yep. Yep. So uh, Twitter is the wedding venue guy on Twitter. That's like my main handle. That's where I'm sharing all my stuff. If you want to look at our venue, it's uh, themidnightgem.com. And then we spun up like our other company, which is Midnight Venues. And that's where we're kind of doing the consulting and then partnering and uh, hopefully buying and investing in more uh, venues as well. Cool. This has been fun, Alex. I really appreciate your time. Yeah. Thank you so much, Patrick. This is great. Okay, folks, that's all I had for today's episode. I hope you enjoyed the show and I'll see you back here real soon. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.